0: tātou, no Mai mai, and welcome to another episode of Asia Insight from the Asia New Zealand Foundation, Te Tohono in Wellington. Co Graham Actonaho, and I'm joined today by International Relations Experts Associate Professor Nicholas Koo from Otago University, and from the University of Canterbury, Professor Alex Tan. And this time we're looking at Australia, where the new government of Anthony Albanese has hit the ground running on the big issues in the Asia-Pacific. He's wasted no time in upping Australia's commitment to ASEAN. He's pushed climate back up the list of government priorities. He's signalled a new commitment to the Pacific Islands and revived the relationship with the Jakarta. Part of that reset will be attendance at the G20 meeting in Bali in November. And of course, when it comes to this country, Labour running the shop in Canberra is never a bad thing when the same thing is happening in the Beehive. I began by asking Alex Tad for his view on the current relationship between Australia and New Zealand.
1: From my read, uh, I think uh, it's going to be slightly different from the prior coalition government, uh, primarily because the Labor, Australian Labour Party At least they're more ideologically closer to the uh, New Zealand Labour Party as such. But, of course, uh, having said that, Australia has their own national interest calculation, which is going to be different from New Zealand's uh, national interest calculation. But I think from what I read from, you know, just visiting uh, the issues of rights of New Zealanders who live there for a long time and that the Albanese government is uh, willing to listen. It's a start. It seems like they are, they are more sympathetic to our government's uh, positioning on some of those issues.
0: What do you think the, the, the major issues facing the Australian government and foreign policy, what do you think they are as Albanese comes in? What do you think the, the main things he has to deal with are?
1: Uh, I, I still think it hasn't changed that much, uh, and it has just been accelerated because of uh, COVID. Uh, the, 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 all the issues that we're dealing with COVID, the fact that uh, it's a much more heightened security environment yes. now that yes. we that we face. So I don't think it has really changed. Could the approach be changed? Maybe, but the issues are still outstanding. The fact that China will still be an uh, an important issue in the region, and now now closer to the Pacific to us the United States uh, still uh, would like to find a proper balance uh, in their how how they show commitment to the region how they how should I say this uh, pursue their national interests as well yeah I don't think that has changed uh, it's just you know Scott Morrison changed to Albanese different ideological persuasion but maybe maybe a different approach. But same issue.
0: What about you, I think Nicholas?
2: Alex hits a lot of the main points. It's basically similar, broad approach in the sense that it represents the basic tradition of an Australian foreign policy in terms of close alliance with the United States, friendly relations with New Zealand, which is not surprising because it's an alliance partner. So therefore, there's a lot of continu- continuity. There will be some differences in terms of tone, But basically in terms of substance it's a very positive continuity having said that tone is important how a country presents itself to the world is important and in that respect i think it's a it's a positive change i think we or rather if i may speak for australia which i probably shouldn't in terms of a a change of tone is it's fine. I mean, that's that's diplomacy. And mm. why not have a better relationship with region and one's neighbours?
0: It strikes me that Anthony Albanese wants to be the leader of Australian foreign policy in a way. He's got a really good foreign minister, but he's not afraid to be right out in front of it himself in the way that Scott Morrison maybe wasn't. Uh, if you're referring to one major difference I can think of would be
2: climate change. And um, I think we're going to see a lot of difference in that respect. Uh, but again, this will come in time. We'll see the full evolution of Albanese's
0: approach, and
2: in fact, whether that garners enough support domestically.
0: One of the the big problems he's got, obviously, is what's going on in the South Pacific and Australia's connection with the South Pacific nations. What do you think he's? Um, I mean, he seems to have, and, and his his foreign minister Penny Wong have have kicked off reasonably well in that in that area. What do you think needs Australia needs to do to? rehabilitate its reputation in the South Pacific?
2: Well, certainly, uh, first and foremost, the Pacific Island Forum. That needs to be core focus of Australian and New Zealand foreign policy, for that matter. And certainly getting on side with the Pacific Island Forum's members, addressing their concerns. Uh, They are important states and entities that uh, we need to deal with uh, and Australia needs to deal with. As we've become very clear about there are external actors who have a deep interest in the evolution of the diplomacy in that particular region. And um, this also happens to be a region that we have very core security interests in. And therefore, we have a deep interest in how this region evolves. And so it's something we just need – cannot be emphasised enough. This is a core security interest for
0: New Zealand and Australia. Do you think the Pacific Island Forum – Alex is the, is the way of the future or do you think it's maybe locked in the past in some way and maybe a new body needs to be developed or is the forum just I, needs to be re, retooled in a way?
1: I, I don't think we, we need to retool or form a new forum as such but what we need to do both New Zealand and Australia and maybe even more Australia rather than us is that uh, you know Nick mentioned this idea of tone right uh, and how important the Pacific Island is you know, I I wrote a, a research paper actually with a with a former student of mine, and on studying the defense diplomacy that Australia, China, and New Zealand has done, and how successful this is on both how it hits the givers' strategy, but also look at it from the recipient side. And consistently, what uh, according to our empirical study is that what New Zealand does better in the Pacific is that we not only hear their call, but we actually listen. And we need to understand that, and and Nick hit it right at the point there, that these are important sovereign states. When we go and talk to our partners there, we literally cannot just be hearing them and waiting to respond, but really to hear and listen their call. In the past, you know, The approach of different governments could be much more, you know, top down, could be much more condescending and probably less diplomatic, which opens an avenue for many people to say that, you know, how the West or Western nations deal with the Pacific harks back to neo-colonialist attitude and all of that stuff. I think we in New Zealand have done relatively well on that. And according to the the diplomacy, defense diplomacy research that I've done is that the recipient countries rate us quite favorably uh, compared to China and Australia, you know, because they feel like they're more top down, you know. Uh, So like what you said, what the Albanese government has done, you know, what Penny Wong has done in this first honeymoon period is to show that they're they not, they are ready to listen, not just hear, but really listen. And I think for countries, small countries uh, in the Pacific, they just want to be treated as equals and as you know as partners rather than
0: you yeah, know a yeah.
1: former colonial place or whatever.
0: I mean, with with this sort of thing, I think it's New Zealand's in a situation where it doesn't have the financial grunt of australia to make things happen in a way in, in in the pacific so we we fall back on a sort of persuasion we have to go there and we have to engage in the argument and we have to talk about the situation and persuade the the island nations that you know we are there to help and we can help in the following ways rather than just sort of coming in as 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 a united states or the australians or the japanese even and just throwing a hold of money at something and making it happen through no. the money
1: when we do our foreign aid it's very targeted as well and and part of that targeting is and you hit you know uh, graham you talk about the fact that we are money doesn't grow on trees here and we are very careful how we spend our money but but at the same time because we have to target we have limited resources we then have to listen to what the primary needs are first right So, and part of that effectiveness is because we did listen, because we don't have a lot, Mm. and so we have Mm. to make sure that what we put is is uh, helpful and it's uh, effective and benefits, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the local populace. You know, so I think there is there's that, and I'm 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 I feel like the signals of this current uh, new Australian government seem to be much more. Uh, receptive uh, uh, to listening and hearing uh, the partners.
0: They also seem to be, um, to me, I don't know who's best to talk about this, but um, about if we talk about Australia's relationship with ASEAN now and what it's been like and what it is, it seems to me that the, the talk in Canberra really is to grow closer to ASEAN, to, to forget about the, the criticism of ASEAN as being a talking shop and all of that stuff and actually latch onto it as a an existing framework that can actually do things in Southeast Asia in a way that Australia can't. What's the future of Australia's relationship with ASEAN, do you think, under the new government? Well, one of the probably most important strategic realities
2: that has occurred over the last few years, and it's it's, in some respects something that was coming for a long time, is the increased great power competition in the Indo-Pacific. And ASEAN is much closer to that than we are. And so therefore, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand need to pay very close attention to what's going on in ASEAN. ASEAN is a very complex organization. It has a long history. uh, And one of the more interesting things we've observed over the last 10, 15 years is that as ASEAN has expanded as an organization in the post-Cold War era, it's begin to lose a little bit of the consensus and momentum behind that organization. So on one hand, at a First glance, it seems to be one of the most successful regional organizations in the world. But at the same time, with the rise of great power competition, we're beginning to see splits within the organization. And this uh, is seen most prominently in the South China Sea issue. So we've had some countries such as Laos and Cambodia take a position that's more sympathetic to China. On the other hand, you have other states in ASEAN, uh, Vietnam, Singapore, uh, some others that Disagree. So these splits were not as serious during the Cold War era, but are increasingly serious now. Uh, and so on, on some security issues, the splits are quite deep. On other issues, uh, the region and regionalism through ASEAN works quite well. So this is part of the complexity that's come about in international politics in Southeast Asia. And Australia
0: has to deal with this new reality, just as we have to. Southeast Asia is quite hard for Australia, isn't it? It seems that it doesn't really get a lot of traction there. I mean, it's it's certainly putting a lot of resource in there, and there's a lot of money, but it's quite politically complicated. and And seems to me in the last few years, maybe hasn't been on the on the front page of their agenda. Would you agree, Alex? With
1: that, yeah, be? I think I would. I definitely would agree. And, and you know, even here in New Zealand, you know, I mean, that is our front yard, and yet, you know, how many how many universities in the country? teaches Bahasa Malayu, yes. how many teachers Thai, right. Vietnam Vietnamese, Tagalog even, you know. So, I, I, you know, when you, talk, when, when, when you think of Australia now rethinking their relationship with ASEAN, to me, it's the obvious. They, you know, they're just, Darwin is closer to Jakarta than it is to Canberra. You know, you have to not deal with them as such, but you have to live with that large border, so to speak. Uh, they are also it also happens to be economically a growing region. Yes, it's very complex because it's very diverse. Uh, you have semi-democratic system, non-democratic system, barely democratic system, and weak democracies, large archipelagos, you know, different religion, different ethnicity. It's very, very complex. But having said that, when we when we when we say you know uh, um for many people they think of asean as a talking shop and but maybe we are coming from a very western centric perspective you know uh, on looking at how asean does their business because in some cultures how do you build trust if you don't talk to each other right i mean so for us over here in the west we have to appreciate the fact that if they if the region doesn't see us as as resident that area, then we have to be accepted to go into their clubs. Now, and then we stand outside and complain about how their club is run, right? I mean, I, I think it's a little bit funny that way. So maybe we have to accept the fact that that's how they do work. It's through dialogue first. Keep on talking, keep on talking, because we might find consensus. And I'd have to say that what I really appreciated, you know, having an Asian background as such, I really appreciated the fact that Penny Wong is foreign minister. You know, it signals, it signals to Asia. It signals to Southeast Asia that we are also part of Southeast Asia. You know, when a foreign minister can speak Bahasa Melayu fluently, how many European foreign ministers, American foreign ministers, would be able to say that comfortably, Mm. you know? And for us here in New Zealand and and certainly in Australia, that is our front yard too. Pacific is our side yard. This is our front yard. And we have no choice but to find a way to coexist and live peacefully. But how do we do that if they don't think us as part of that group? Well, we enter their club, we Keep on talking to them.
0: Should Australia, do you think, apply to become a member of ASEAN?
1: Would that work? I think that's difficult because it's almost like Australia joining the uh, Asia football, you know, cup, you know, kind of the same the same issue or Asia basketball, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a little bit a step too far, I think. Uh, I don't think the ASEAN would be, not all ASEAN countries would be comfortable.
0: No, no, indeed. They're a
2: long-standing dialogue partner of ASEAN, so yeah. in that sense, um, they maintain very close links. But uh, in terms of membership for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, you'd, you'd have to physically be an, uh, a member. So the only really serious uh, possibility in terms of ASEAN expansion would be East Timor, because, because it is physically part of.
1: Uh, That's right. South. But we're part of their We're part of many of this other groups that uh, that has ASEAN a central which is good I mean I, I think uh, we have done well in in saying that hey we're, ha- we're we're more than willing to to be part of that to be part of that conversation and continued part of that uh, because you know I mean it's, it's corny to say it but it's really our front yard we have to take care we have to you know we have to be Mm. there. In many respects, it's a no-brainer because our economic and
2: our military security interests converge on the stability of Southeast Asia. Yeah, Uh, It's It's pretty obvious. And in fact, uh, there are empirical examples where um, New Zealand and Australia have invested their military resources and their diplomatic resources on top of that to the stability of Southeast Asia. I go no further than to say in the Vietnam War, uh, New Zealand and Australia had troops physically participating in that Uh, conflict, uh, or for the stability of the region. So this is not an abstract issue for uh, New Zealanders in the past. But somehow or other, after the Cold War, it has evolved to a point where this message needs to be reiterated.
1: And I think think for New Zealand, we were talking about the Albanese government approach. But I think for us here in New Zealand, we should listen to Southeast Asia. They have dealt with big neighbours and big superpowers, since post you know second world war and how they approach this, how they deal with this intricacies of great power rivalries, how they manage to to grow in spite of all these push and pull factors. We have to learn from that. And and I would say that we need to pay more close attention, have true dialogue partners on the capitals from Manila to Jakarta, Hanoi, Bangkok. Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, very, very, very much needed. They are trading nations like
0: us. A couple of years ago, a leader of one of the leading Thai political parties said to me, when New Zealand speaks, Thailand listens, because we're interested in what New Zealand thinks about what's going on. Do you think that message is clouded over to a certain extent? We're feeling that we're not important enough, that we're not important, or we don't know what to say, or we don't know how to say it, or we don't know who should be saying it or where it should be said? Well, there's kind of shall we say, lack of confidence
2: uh, comes about because engagement has not been as sustained as I would argue has to be the case. So there's no substitute to actually getting down and doing the work of engagement with the Southeast Asian states. It's not to say that New Zealand and Australia as uh, nation states have not participated in the region's diplomacy. But what we're highlighting is that this engagement on the part of Australia and New Zealand needs to be ramped up and that there is no reason why it shouldn't be ramped up. In fact, there is every reason in the world and every interest in the world for both countries to ramp up their engagement. It's just common sense. And may I just add that this is one of the most dynamic trading areas in the world. So to the extent that we need to increase our engagement, it practically means we need to be uh, kind of channeling our resources toward education learning the language of the region, learning the history of the region. That means financing courses in New Zealand and Australian universities that deal with what are known as area studies. And that is the first step to really taking the region seriously.
1: And you know, I mean, even the fact about uh, what not to, uh, that we feel like we don't have much to say when, just think of how many overseas based foreign correspondent we have based in these countries right? That's mm. an issue already. We don't have enough ears on the ground to begin with.
0: Well, we don't have any, actually, do we? That's Alex? right. You know, and, we and, have... and I'd hope
1: that, you know, I mean, this is, it's not a very difficult, you know, very difficult place, you know, based in Singapore, based mm. in Bangkok, based in Jakarta. It's skipping a hop to come back to Wellington, you know? Mm. But I, I do feel that, you know, we talk, of, we talk of the risk of putting all our eggs in one economic basket and talk about diversification. And yet, there is this ready market up there, nearly half, slightly more than half a billion people and growing with the correct demographics. And, you know, we we talk about uh, certainly our foundation right here, Asia New Zealand Foundation. We, we want people to get Asia ready and stuff like that. But Asia is such a big place. Right. But we can start and say, hey, maybe we should make our guys Southeast Asia ready now. We should make our and we and and because of the challenges of great power rivalry, what they face, what the Singaporeans face, what the Thai face, the Malaysians, Filipinos, Vietnamese, and us are not too different. We are small states,
0: you know, in these in this really rough water, you know, sure, really. Just just going back to Canberra uh, for a moment, one of the big changes that we've seen since Albanese arrived is the, the beginnings of a new attitude to China and a, and a sort of a more of a, a softer attitude, if you like, and moving away from the economic coercion sort of um, rhetoric over the last couple of years. How do you, how do you both see um, Australia's relationship with China in the next five years or so, under the Albanese government, at least? Well, it takes two to tango. <laughs> so...
2: Uh, Obviously, the Albanese government represents a slightly softer tone, perhaps more diplomatic. But at the same time, uh, since it takes two to participate in a relationship, relationship can really only grow and prosper if there's reciprocity on the part of the Chinese. And um, we'll really begin to see if there's substantive change in the uh, approach adopted by the People's Republic of China after the party congress at the end of the year. That's when we'll really begin to see if um, Australia has a uh, partner that's willing to cooperate with it uh, in a genuine way. And uh, given what's occurred over the last two or three years, uh, I think it's fair to say the jury is out and there
0: are reasons for cautious for a cautious approach. Could you see co- the coal ban, for example, being lifted, the uh, coal export ban China has imposed?
2: Well, let's even move beyond the coal ban. Mm. I think in, in a systematic uh, approach that well, certainly the Chinese need to be reevaluating their uh, approach to diplomacy. I think adopting coercive diplomacy backfires in the long run. Uh, it sends uh, a very bad signal to the rest of the region, let alone the world, uh, that uh, China's not open for business. Uh, and not not just not open for business, but it's willing to resort to coercion. Uh, now, they obviously have a different perspective on it. They have their own justification for why they'll impose a certain type of policy, but uh, looking at it from where we stand, uh, it sure looks to be a counterproductive policy.
1: And I think I think the 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 you know the saying that our grandmother tells us, you know, it's not how you say it's how I hear it. You know, I think it has to be reiterated the fact that the Chinese may be saying I don't know enough about the domestic politics, but could you know is is it an audience cost with regards to their politicians, right? Are they talking to their own people more than talking to us? But they have to be conscious that that whatever they say, wolf warrior diplomacy and what have you, we will have a different way of hearing it. And sometimes what we hear it is quite rough and quite the uh, pushy and coercive and stuff like that. The Albanese, you know, as uh, uh, Nick says, it takes two to tango, you know, there's this book uh, on evolution of cooperation, you know. Oh, Axelrod, yeah, uh, Yeah, the Robert Axelrod's yeah. book on evolution for cooperation. You know, what Australia has done is I've shown my my hand out now. So, it's now your turn to show your hand out so that we can shake hand. The approach is different. The interest of, na- na- Australia's national interest has not changed. They will not re- readily budge from that. I definitely agree, right? But, diplomacy does not mean that you're soft, right? Doing diplomacy does not necessarily mean you're soft. You don't always need to brand a stick to get the job done because sometimes very persuasive speaker and great diplomacy, you can get things done too, right? Mm -hmm. So so I guess they saw the Scott Morrison government did it one way. Let's try this other way. Maybe let's see how this works, right? So, but it's now, the ball's in the Chinese court. What's your move? Are you going to be wolf warrior? Are you still going to be speaking to that domestic nationalist politics within the country, or are you going to be engaging with us now? You know.
0: So Nikki, suggesting that really that question is being posed by Xi Jinping, and and it's coming in front of the 20th Congress right later this year. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly he he's the man who's going to have to make a decision on that particular part of their policy, do you think?
2: Yes, and it's quite interesting that in many respects, Xi Jinping's tenure uh, represented quite a, ver- quite a different approach to diplomacy compared to his predecessors, in particular Hu Jintao uh, and Jiang Zemin, uh, and in particular Deng Xiaoping, because these three leaders before Xi uh, believed, broadly speaking, that China could rise peacefully and that it could engage its neighbors, uh, including Australia and New Zealand, and that this was a win-win situation. Uh, I don't think it's terribly controversial to say that in the past 10 years or so, uh, we've seen a very different approach. And I'm far from convinced that this is useful for China's national interests. As Alex said, uh, there's a lot of speaking to the domestic audience within China. But uh, if China wants to be treated as a major power that is contributing to stability in the world. Uh, It needs to be speaking not just to its domestic audience, because we understand that China requires the legitimacy that comes with uh, having its domestic audience on board. But at the same time, it's equally important that the world understands and uh, that China is interested in stability for the world. And China's own rhetoric is that its rise contributes to stability in the world. Uh, And I think it's not terribly controversial to say in the last 10 years that's something in which reasonable people can disagree with uh, many uh, Chinese diplomats all.
0: I've been talking with Professor Alex Tan from the University of Canterbury and Associate Professor Nicholas Koo from Otago University in Dunedin. That's it for this edition of Asia Insight. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anō.